everybody and welcome to the Substation podcast. My name is Emma Burns. And my name is Tom Edwards. And today we're going to be talking about data in retail. Um, we recorded this episode in September 2021. Things since then, things have gotten worse for suppliers of electricity in GB um, because we have the price cap um, in place, which we'll explain in this episode. Customers are effectively an uncapped liability um, and we've seen a further six suppliers go through the backstop supply arrangements, the supplier of last resort in early no- November, with over 70,000 customers um, affected by that. We also saw CNG, who were a gas shipper, and they provided route to the gas market for a number of suppliers. Um, and they've also gone out of business, which is which we would expect to have a knock-on effect potentially for other suppliers as well. So I think so far um, the numbers are standing at something like 600,000 customers have been through Supplier of Last Resort this year in 2021. And if you add in 2020, then you're getting on for about a million. Um, and Out of a total of 29 million. So yeah, it's a exactly. Reasonable proportion of the market. Um, and to the extent that Alexon even reminded, who are the kind of um, central settlement agent, reminded everyone on, um, on what happens in the process of uh, like bad debts because they're not allowed to pay you any of your trading charges. So if you earn money through the balancing mechanism or imbalance, Alexon can't pay you. If someone goes bust and they therefore can't collect enough money to pay everybody back, so there, there could actually be a position where like defaults roll into bad debt and all that sort of stuff comes along if there's a big enough failure in the market. So watch this space for retail competition in GB. Um, but yeah, in this episode, we'll talk a bit, a bit about data and a little bit about competition. So enjoy. So Tom, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Emma. Uh, is it as exciting where you are as where I am? Because uh, because it, it's the highest ever day ahead price uh, was reached today. Man, I'm. I mean, it's all very exciting, but I I've had enough of record breaking prices. I'm just a little bit concerned at this stage. <laughs> um, oh, there was all the news about suppliers as well, or two, I think two suppliers today. Yes, they went into solar, yeah, and then um, there were two the week before, mm-hmm. and I think it's something like 600,000 customers in total. Wow. So that's, they've gone on to this supplier of last resort arrangement, which is kind mm. of like the back, like the backup, isn't it, for energy supply if, it, if yeah. a supplier fails? Where Offgem takes, uh, yeah, takes you on and then auctions you out to whichever suppliers want you, mm. um, and it's a, it's a good way to grab. Uh, if you can, if you can take them on, I mean, I, what is it? I likened it. I likened it. Um, I don't know if you if you play much like city management or resource resource management computer games, but there's always a, a like period. SimCity. Yeah, like SimCity. I love you, SimCity as a child. Where you grow too quickly, and then like things get out of control, prices go too high, and st- stuff starts breaking. Mm-hmm. And and the only way to like fix it is to like kind of shrink back again. Mm-hmm. And and it kind of feels like oh maybe maybe just in time delivery and running stuff to the bone isn't such a good idea. Well, what's interesting for me is so I was involved in the Competition and Markets Authority investigation into electricity and gas retail back whenever that was twenty fifteen ish. And the narrative there, and sort of had been for years, was that you know the barriers to entry are too high. You know, small suppliers can't compete; they can't get a, get a leg in. And I suppose this is kind of the counter to that, right? You know, I suppose people are asking now: maybe there should have been higher barriers, or are the barriers that are in place appropriate? Yeah, um, I think the other thing is that if you're an investor in electricity kit, then this is going to be a great case study for Ofgem's like plan because the was it I mean, the way the impression I got from the Ofgem position as part of balancing significant code review is that prices should be uncapped and they're completely ambivalent about how high they go mm-hmm. and I think this winter is really going to test that ambivalence 
Um, well, because... it's an ambivalence, though. Arguably, it's endorsed, right? I mean, oh, that's yeah, the yeah. whole feature of our market, that prices should be able to rise. And if they, if yeah, if they do, if they're, they're completely happy that they go, you know, technically they can go all the way up to 99,999. Um, is Ofgem or government ever going to step in at this point? Because I think, you know, we're seeing this is going to be it. The big test of is volatility you know what the government wants is it is the price signal always going to be uncapped can i can i truly believe that i can capture my scarcity rent because in that in the one period where we got close nobody stepped in and stopped it um which is so far yeah that's what's happened i mean whether or not it stays like this for the rest of the winter because it's been very still Mm. so when the wind comes back it'll be fine is my guess because um, well, it's, it's interesting what you said about how high prices would be allowed to go up, and I know you said nine 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 nine, which or however many nines, <laughs> which I guess is technically you know how many digits you can put into the system. But I suppose there is this idea of how much are customers willing to pay, um, which you know I think brings us nicely onto our topic for the day, um, which is data and retail. Mm. So. Uh, as part of date, like retail, I thought we'd start with, in a similar vein as what we did with the other ones, is what is a supplier? What, what do you think a supplier is? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, a supplier is, well, they can be a licensed or unlicensed entity. They supply to a premises or a customer, I think, uh, and uh, electricity. <laughs> um and I mean, typically what they do, what they focus on are things like trading, risk management, um, I suppose the interface with the customer would be a big role of the supplier. So talking to them and getting the data from them, um, credit, <laughs> <laughs> what else do they do? Um, so if I was going to, if I was going to put it in a romantic way and be prosaic, Please. I would say something like <laughs> the supplier is the fulcrum of the power market or where the the customer demand is supposed to crystallize through the wholesale market into investment and operational decisions and you recover all of the cost of running the system and parties can hedge their risk and and you know influence the decision the decision in both the short and the long term of the power market Mm. and i mean that's right isn't it it's a supplier hub principle kind of is that idea that it's the fulcrum really the supplier sits at the heart of everything but the pragmatist in me who is just going to be cheeky is just going to say it's just a billing engine uh it reads it reads your meter it buys some power for you and it collected some tax from you um how smart they are uh, not very would be my guess but that's not necessarily their fault because what they're in most cases um of the 29 odd million meter points that there are most of them are uh extremely dumb machines that are what, what we call non-half hourly meters that just read a number uh, and then the job of the supplier is to read the number between two dates and apply a, f- a formula to to the between uh hopefully they'll have bought some power that roughly matches that formula um and and recover some money from you and pay it to the government or the network company I suppose there's a there's a, a engagement angle a marketing angle as well I suppose you know suppliers do play a role in encouraging customers to switch and offer them deals and kind of think about that the products the customers want yeah so yeah. um th- yeah they're supposed to create that environment and then whether or not they i mean by license they are supposed to remind you that you can switch whenever they change your tariff um whether or not they want you to it seems that most of that kind of effort is done by switching comparison websites and people telling you you know government and price comparison and off the regulator say by the way you can switch um it has not always been so though uh so in the 1990s and before this was done by the regional uh, or at least in the household level before liberalization this was done by the regional electricity companies so if you've ever seen red dwarf uh you know there's there's a there's a gag where the computer holly says oh by the way dave you're being chased by someone from the norweb federation norweb being the northwestern electricity board because he's left his light on uh, and it's three million years in the future, and the only one who owes any money 
is Dave Lister to the northwest to the northwest electricity board. <laughs> well, I'm glad they're still effective enough that they're able to chase them off of it. <laughs> Good debt collecting there. Uh, and if you were in a supply area, you bought your power from the area board. And they bought it from the transmission system, so you didn't have very much of a kind of input or anything. But basically, mm. the only thing that you could do was move to a different area if you wanted to change in the 1990s that did change so mm. non-domestic supplies were opened up um near the start of the pool i think and here we're talking about the england and wales pool which was the name of the first electricity market in gb when we liberalized in 1990 there we had a single centralised market for pricing and for dispatch of all assets and where all suppliers would go to get their energy. We got rid of that in 2001 and introduced the market that we have now called the New Electricity Trading Arrangements or NITA, which is a more decentralised market that has more of a focus on forward trading and bilateral trades between market participants. <laughs> Um, were gradually opened up to competition based on your size. And then from 1998, that's when all consumers were able to choose who their supplier was, regardless of what their position in the market was. So then in the early 2000s, uh, you were basically able to buy from these regional electricity companies and um, the generators did some regulatory deals. So uh, National Power and Power Gen did some deals where they said, oh, we'll sell off a power station if we can buy a electricity board. Um, and that's where you get the big six from, except for British Gas, who happened to know where everybody lived, so just offered them an electricity tariff as well. Well, so they're unique, right? Because they the gas privatization was different to electricity privatization, mm. wasn't it? Yeah. So they um, they were already privatized. Uh, gas liberalization was, especially on the domestic side, much less successful than electricity mm. um partly because everyone got their gas from british gas at the That's time the thing. It, yeah it was done in a different way you, you, mm. you didn't at least well in electricity at least the system was sort of divvied up into those 14 regions in the first step to sort of create yeah. those different entities and then that's where we get the big six from but the big six are arguably a irrelevant metric nowadays mm-hmm. so in the 2010s the well, independence... what, what, sorry what, what do we mean by the big six so it's so it, it was these mean? it was these companies that bought that they were generators or they were regional electricity boards or British gas and they bought together um, generation and supply. So you bought either you bought a regional electricity company, you had a power station, you therefore had a natural a natural hedge. So your power station could supply your customers, uh, and you could tell a bank that hey, don't worry about giving me this money for a new gas turbine because I've got all these customers and they never switch so I'll always have them Um, or on the other hand it's don't worry about my supply business I've got a coal-fired power station and therefore imbalance doesn't bother me. Mm. Well that's Uh, interesting as well because you mentioned the 2000s and obviously we had the new market come in in 2001 which I suppose arguably changed incentives to well maybe increased incentives to vertically integrate. Yeah and, and crucially it completely and utterly wiped out the profitability of independent generators um so you ended up with a lot of generators floating around in distress sales so a lot of the um uh fiddler's ferry and ferry bridge were bought by sse and and i believe it was described as the deal of the decade uh, just for the value of the coal on site and sse then became um the second biggest of the big six so british gas was always the biggest because they had you know everyone's phone number um, but SSE was then the second biggest because they bought these two power stations dead cheap and they were able to offer very cheap electricity tariffs to people because they knew that they always had these power stations mm. in their back pocket. Um, that collapsed in the 2010s. So part of that was the... There were... Um, you have the independent suppliers turning up. Basically, these regional electricity companies were, let's say, rickety. Uh and maybe necess- didn't necessarily have the best systems. They definitely didn't have the best customer support. And crucially, they 
were like the least trusted brands in existence. Well, that's what I was going to say as well. There was yeah the entrance of the new suppliers, but there's also the regulatory and political backdrop. And I believe I remember the term stranglehold was often used of the big six um, that they had in the market. So as you see, yeah, the, the political or the, at least the public sentiment, I think, was a, was a key factor there as well. Yeah. Um, and so OVO, I guess, are a good example. Ecotricity, good energy. Bulbs a bit later in the story. Bulb and Octopus are a bit later in the story. I think really, though, the, the trailblazers, trailblazers, you would say, would be OVO as the kind of poster boy for a new supply company. They're either talking about um, I mean, the, the biggest advantage is they didn't have the rickety old systems. Um, they didn't have the the cost um, kind of weighing down on them of, of like quite large amounts of debt from bringing on big power station supplies that maybe necessarily weren't the best purchases, uh, given given all the stuff that was happening in the generation market. Mm. You also uh, had those thresholds as well. There was um, exactly. for recovering policy costs, wasn't it? Yeah. So the eco cap was mm. is the big one. Um, so, crucially, if you're a under two hundred and fifty thousand customers, you don't pay the eco, the energy company obligation, or you didn't pay the eco, um, and that basically was a huge cost advantage to the small suppliers. They could offer much cheaper tariffs, get claw their way in, to the extent that um, the kind of the big deal about becoming a small supplier was when you went over that cap because mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. had to. Um, you could kind of grow fairly happily at your own pace until you hit 250,000. But once you hit 250,000, you're then paying for the eco. And you've got to grow at a breakneck speed then Mm -hmm. to try and get to an economy of scale where it then makes sense to kind of, well, run a proper supply business. Mm -hmm. Um, So that that was one of the big deals. And of course, at the time, the power prices were low and benign. Yeah. So you could, yeah. yeah, So we talked about trading last Mm -hmm. time. Um, you didn't have to worry quite so much about being fully hedged, uh, and I guess arguably now, as we as we just talked about, that is a, a big question. Which I mean, yeah, I I I remember looking at data of certain suppliers, um, some of which may not be in business anymore. I guess back in 2015, 2016, and there was a marked difference, I suppose, between well, I suppose different trading strategies. Some people were actively managing and hedging. Um, much more, well, much more actively after the day ahead stage, and others were just saying, "Well, we'll, we'll trade to the day ahead stage and just sort of accept any costs thereafter." So you saw these big differences and imbalance volumes as a result. But as you mentioned, because prices were low and benign, that wasn't necessarily a problem. But obviously, we're in a bit of a different context now. So, Tom, we we touched on the supplier hub principle earlier. Um, can you talk a bit more about that? So this is the idea that. Um, there's all these money uh, companies that want to collect money from you. Uh, so as, as a consumer, I've used the transmission system, the distribution system. I, I need to pay my taxes for um, renewable obligation and um, warm homes discount and all that sort of stuff. And I don't want to get like four or five different bills from all these companies. Because I guess if you're thinking from the idea of creating a functioning market, that would kind of fatally undermine you know, people's perceptions of whether or not this was an efficient thing to do if I'm getting four or five separate bills and it would just be a huge hassle. So um, instead of the customer paying the bill directly, um, the bills go to the supplier and the supplier has a relationship with the customer. So the supplier manages the exposure to the wholesale market, the um, network network tariffs, it, at the um, policy support costs and all that sort of stuff. It receives the bills determines what the tariff should be and charges me, the customer, for managing all of that risk. Um, so that's one of the key things around, um, or like especially around data and um, data collection, data aggregation, all that stuff is that the supplier is the hub for all of this information. And crucially, it means if you want to do anything in the, in the supply market or in the electricity market that's interesting, realistically, you need to be a supplier. Um, which is what a lot of people like the aggregators have found is that if I want to manage customer relationships, if I want to look behind the meter, if I want to trade power in any sort of interesting way or be involved in the distribution network, realistically, I need a supply license and need to become a supply business. So I guess what started out as, you know, something to make people's lives easier with having a single point of, of contact for everything is now potentially a bit of a barrier to some more interesting, flexible offerings. Yeah. And, and the, 
the supply license is very heavy handed as well. So if you're a supplier, you you are then bound by all the parts of the supply license, regardless of kind of whether or not I actually want to supply a customer in Cornwall. I actually have to be capable of doing that, even if I only want to uh, operate a battery in East Anglia. Um, and that's partly because the supplier is hooked up into all of these things. It's the agent for the RO. It has to deal with the data collectors and the data aggregators and make sure the data that goes into the central assessment agents uh, is correct. And it's the one held on the line. If it's not, um, they've got to think about losses and hedging and uh, network charges and pass all of this data around and collect all the money from the customer and manage the customer experience and all of this stuff. And the central assessment systems have all been set up in the idea that you do everything. So if you want to come qualify as a supplier, you've got to do everything. So if you, for example, if you want to set up as a supplier, get a supply, um, qualify as a supply participant in the balancing assessment code, you get given 14 um, balancing mechanism units, containers for your data, regardless of whether or not you actually want to supply in all of those different parts of the country. So the 14... Yeah, grid supply point groups, yeah. A grid supply point is the point at which the distribution system joins the transmission system. And there are 14 grid supply point groups, which correspond to the 14 historical regional electricity boards when we privatise the electricity market. And this also means that the supplier is a cash business a lot of the the role and responsibility of being a supplier is about managing your cash in and out mm. because you've got um you've got to make sure your tariffs are the right level to support you across the years they might be um so for example in the summer when prices drop and consumption drops and a lot of the, uh, the kind of network charges and policy support costs aren't being charged you might be over recovering money because um, perhaps if you've got a flat tariff, which is essentially the structure, then yeah, you're over recovering, and then in the winter you you're you may be under recovering because you might be exposed to higher day ahead prices. Or okay. so uh, network charges are another example, and that they have um, cash calls at certain times of the month. So it is all about managing your exposure to these income incoming and outcoming kind of cash elements. Because um, if your direct debits are late customers haven't paid on time and you know this can all pile up and, and create immediate headaches um especially things around credit and collateral as well are another big issue because um you've got these government-backed schemes that require that you know they, they the government has made a promise they will pay these gen uh, the generators their money um so the suppliers are the ones on the hook uh, and they need to they need to hold enough credit and collateral to make sure that you know if you fail or if a certain percentage of the market fails, that there's enough cash out there to make sure the government can still keep paying the generators. And so um, some of the, uh, yeah, the mechanisms there can mean that you're actually tying up a large amount of capital mm. in bank accounts that are actually not being used. Um, to, so one of the stories I heard, I think this was back in 2014, is that the, the uh, credit and collateral payment um, for wholesale charges, uh, imbalance charges even, um, because it's it kind of changes every month based on what household prices do. In one case, a uh, supplier gets caught out, they don't have enough money in their account. Uh, you've only got a certain amount of time before Alexon then takes away your ability to do stuff in the wholesale market, which just makes it worse. Uh, and in one case, a, 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 I'm not sure if they were a CEO or somebody like mortgaged their house to put enough money into the credit collateral account because they were like, okay, yeah. well, the price will come down. I'll get the money out again. <laughs> and then, uh, and well, then I'll, I'll pay off my house. <laughs> I mean, I do remember, yeah, that was always one of the biggest barriers cited was credit and collateral and the, and the huge costs of that. And I suppose if you are, if you're a well-established credit worthy party, it's probably more straightforward to get a letter from a bank. But if you're yeah, a smaller new entrant, it's a bit more risky. Mm. certainly a big barrier there so i think let's let's get it straight in our heads now what is it that a supplier is doing so i think a supplier is two businesses it is a data business and um it's a cash flow customer business uh 
Mm. So on one hand, it is about making sure the cash flow between myself, my counterparties and my contractual um, parties, the customers that I have is flowing. I need to make sure the cash is flowing and balanced. I need to make sure those customers are happy and getting what they wanted and, and that's a key part of my business. And the other side is it's a data business. It is about managing the flow of data, about forecasts of consumption, uh, meter readings, um, network charges, uh, keeping a database of all of that information about what the charges are, what tariffs I have, and who these people are that I'm contracting with, what their payment details are, where they are on the network, what their MPANs are, what the register in the MDD, the market domain database is, which is basically the database of who owns what meter and what those meters, like standard assessment configure, you know, all the information about the meters is. And those are the two sides, I believe, um, of of that uh, of, of that kind of business. Well, I mean, Tommy, make it sound very simple. <laughs> if it's just data and cash management, I mean, why haven't we seen more sort of tech companies or disruptors coming in? So, what what is it? I think that okay, what is it that the um, those tech companies are interested in? What do they want out of a market? Why would they go into something? Um, and I'd say arguably like your, your fangs, your Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. I've never heard that before. That's good. And also slightly threatening. Sounding. <laughs> um, what do they want? They want your data mm. or, um, they want to sell you something or sell you. They want to be able to look at you in detail, learn lots about you and either use that to sell you something or to sell you to somebody. Um, so I'd actually argue then that the data that the supply industry has isn't very rich. So realistically, what they know about you is what your meter administration number is. They have your bank details. Um, they've got which part of the country you're connected to and at what voltage. Mm -hmm. They probably have your postcode, or at least they know somebody who has your postcode because the data collector needs to occasionally turn up and read your meter. And they know your address, so they know where you are. But then, um, and they know what, how much electricity and gas you can, how much electricity you consume every half an hour and how much gas you consume every day-ish. Well, I mean, there's something in that, though, right? I mean, if you know when people are consuming electricity, you can figure out when they're go putting the heating on, putting the oven on, going to the toilet. There's all kinds of things you can deduce from that. Arguably, I'd say you can work that out from... So if you're Netflix, I can probably work that out from when you've got Netflix turned on or off. If you're Google, I can work out much more about you from the emails of yours that I'm reading, because I probably run your email server, mm -hmm. the searches that, uh, that you're making... And you're using my mapping software. I know where you are. <laughs> like, I can learn so much more about you from your phone than I can from your electricity meter. So I'm, I don't think that there is an incentive realistically in this market as it stands today, possibly even in the near-term near future, for these companies to really be interested in this. Because um, from that point of view, from like a data, you know, we're big tech, we're going to use big data. I'm not sure that the metadata you get about electricity is not that great because it's every half hour. I can't tell if you're on the TV or if you're running a kettle because say if they've got the same max power output and you're only watching, using them for the same amount of time, I can't tell the difference from the data that I get from you. All I can realistically tell is whether or not you're in the house. <laughs> if you've got the lights on and, and, and all that sort of stuff, which I could get from a statistical sample anyway. Um, and I suppose this is this is in the current world, right? So mm. here we're talking about, well, and, and current world, but also potentially with half hourly meters. Yeah, even with half hourly meters, I don't think the data is that rich. It's not yeah. really telling me much more than I could learn from all the other stuff that most people are giving me for free. Um, or I have to run a service for them, but, you know. The other thing that I think that these kind of big tech disruptor type companies could be doing is the other kind of model, which is the Uber, WeWork, um, Deliveroo model, which is here's a state old industry. I can come in and disrupt it with my new systems, better customer service, and the fact I have access to huge sums of cheap venture capital because I can tell a good story that I will eventually become a monopoly. And, you know, the, the idea of Uber is that I can either I can cheat my way 
into being a ta- into being everyone's taxi company because I don't pay my drivers um, or I don't class my drivers as employers employees, um, so I don't have to have the full you know um, labor cost of, of running a taxi business. And also, I've been given a huge amount of money because I told a story that I would be the future of taxi companies. Um, so I can just throw that at the market to gain market position. And then eventually I'll be the only one left standing and I'll be the monopoly. Um, you know, same thing for WeWork. They pretended they weren't landlords when they were just landlords and they had lots of money and told a good story. Um, arguably, delivery does do a bit more, but you're getting into questions of can you do that in the in the electricity market? Is there ever going to be a, a dominant retail position that isn't already taken up by somebody who's got the best name, which is British Gas? Like if you're a British customer, you know, to the point at which that British Gas even calls themselves Scottish Gas in Scotland, like they've already got the best name. What are they going to, what are you going to do? Also, people don't care that much about who the electricity comes from. Well, you know, this is my view, (laughs) right? And I think we haven't gotten onto this yet, but we might as well do it now. Like how much do customers want to engage in the retail market in electricity? I mean, I would rather do other things with my time. I know you're quite fa- quite a big fan of switching, and you're quite active, um, but well, I mean, I, I still think. I mean, I only do it occasionally, and and even this winter, winter I looked at it and went, uh, probably not, given how high uh, costs have gone. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think I'm not sure that, and in this world or in the world of the next five years, someone's going to come along and say, become the Google of of electricity. Uh, it's probably not going to emerge in this market could the question then is could octopus become it um because they're the ones who do seem to have that kind of you know they've gone heavy on the customer service thing you know that everyone is or at least from what i see they top the score charts of customer service they've got great branding uh, they don't yet turn a profit just to note uh, Octopus do actually make a profit as a company because they have lots of uh, enterprises. So like, across the whole company, Octopus Supply does make a, a profit. But as a supply, like as the supply business in GB, they are, uh, or at least the last time I looked at their accounts, not actually uh, turning a profit just on the supply portion of their business. <laughs> but then, you know, that's that's fine for a modern tech, a modern company, as long as you can tell the story that, that you will, then that's all that matters. And they have um, a great offering as well. They have this agile tariff, so linked to day ahead prices, which is, I think, was first of its kind. Yeah, so on a, on a half hourly basis, there's like a calculation that looks at the day ahead price, and then there's a formula for converting that into your tariff, um, I believe. And it is limited in who it's offered to as well. I don't think everyone can, can get it. Uh, so you do have to be on a half hourly meter as well, I believe, like a smart meter. And it's capped at three and a half pence per kilowatt hour. So 30, 350 pounds per kilowatt hour equivalent. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's the people who've took, taken it really like it. Mm. Um, whether or not that's a mass market offering, like will you ever achieve market dominance by being the time of use supplier well i think that's a, that's the point right it's, it's the customers that have taken it so and i think when we talk about the retail market there's often this idea of like a two-tier market isn't there so we used to well we still do talk about sort of sticky customers so those customers perhaps like me <laughs> um you know who aren't as engaged who, who don't actively switch as much in the market and um, maybe have never switched so maybe you know they inherited their supplier when competition came along and they've never They've never gone to market and tried to get a better deal. Whereas then the the other tier of market are these more engaged, informed um, consumers who can go to the likes of Ovo and Octopus and and potentially save a lot of money. Yeah. The question there, though, is are those savvy, engaged customers also fickle? (laughs) Because I know I am. Well, exactly, exactly. That's the the downside, isn't it, of targeting customers that will actually become your customers, is that they might become someone else's customers in future. Mm. Okay, so there's a couple of examples. We're starting to see some interesting retail models come through. I suppose what would change or what could change in future that, that might make it more an attractive proposition? So we haven't talked about the elephant in the room, which is the price cap. So it's quite important to mention that 
there is currently a, a price cap for standard variable tariffs. Um, so what we mean by that is the people who haven't switched recently fall onto this kind of standard variable tariff. It can change within certain boundaries, which is the variable bit. So occasionally the supplier allowed to change it um, as long as it doesn't go above the cap, which is set in a six month price control by Ofgem. And they do an assessment of what they think the, um, the cost of hedging forward will be, uh, as well as the like an assessment of network charges and um, the RO, the small scale fit, all the social recovery costs and, and an idea of cost to serve and a profit margin of, mm. it's not great. I can't remember, but it's in the low percents. Um, and this is this is a relatively new intervention. In the, well, it's both a new and an old intervention in the market. So I suppose when you were talking earlier about retail competition, we had price caps in place at the start of the market to you know ensure that customers weren't worse off. And we've newly introduced this price cap. Was it 2015, 2016, thereabouts? No, I think it's new. So it definitely came after the CMA, so I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure it's... 2018 ish, something, well, again, something like that. Yeah, out of the, that CMA competition and market authority process, yeah. which was, as mentioned earlier, so this was this uh, review into competition in, in retail, in electricity and gas. And I suppose, well, my personal reading of it was, was that it was a bit of a political thing, you know, to the point we made earlier about customers just not trusting the market. Um, and there was, well, a potential range of different, what they call theories of harm listed. So things like vertical integration, is that causing issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I suppose one of the findings was along these lines that will half the market or well, a large portion of the market are sticky. They're not going to engage, they're disengaged. So we're going to need to in reintroduce this additional safeguard for those customers. Yeah. And, and so we're in this position where um, you could theoretically be on a pretty good tariff just by being on a standard variable tariff, which didn't always used to be the case because um, you would sweat your sticky customers to pay for your customer acquisition who, you know, the fickle customers flitting around. You can't sweat them realistically now because of this, this price cap and arguably it introduces a lot more competition in in the lower level. Uh, we definitely we haven't seen a reduction in the number of tariffs being offered. They, I mean, until um, uh, until this winter, you know, you could definitely be confident that you'd get a good deal by not going for the standard variable tariff. Whereas, you know, the non-standard tariffs could go above the price cap because you were officially shopping around for that. So um, that. That is, a, you know, you can put it as long as it's not your standard variable tariff, which people fall back onto once their fixed term contract ends. Um, so will that always be there? Because I guess the intention when it's put in place is that at some point they would decide it was no longer needed. Um, I'm not sure they set out the criteria for how they would decide. It's one of those things where they said, look, we'll get rid of it eventually, honest. There were, from memory, there was a story. <laughs> there wasn't specific criteria, but it was this idea of, you know, once we've moved customers more onto half hourly meters rather than non half hourly, once we start to see, um, I suppose, more engagement as a result of that. It, yeah, it was all about this, I suppose, this future of market wide half hourly settlement, um, which is kind of was always seen as this panacea. And once we crack this, so, you know, and what that means is, you know, once we're settling the whole market, so we're exposing all suppliers to, you know, the half hourly volumes that their customers are are consuming. Only then, when you've really got those sharp incentives, will there be, I suppose, incentives for suppliers to offer innovative tariffs um, and, and also the ability to do so. So I think I'd like to, to for this future bit, split this into two streams. What do we do for our engaged customers or the fickle flitters and the sticky customers and the steady stayers and yeah, something like that. Um, so I think there'll always be some form of market intervention for the people who aren't switching and moving. Cause I, I do think that there is a desire or at least in large parts of the market for people to have a very simple experience with their electricity and gas supply. I want to use my utility 
and pay for it. And I want to not be ripped off or feel like I'm losing out to my neighbours or somebody else. And I think that there will always be a place for that, whether or not it's under a price cap or people. Another option could be like um, a collective switching regime. That was always my preferred option to a price cap. Sorry, sorry. But I was really keen on that. So this idea that you could have like an opt out collective switch for customers that weren't engaged. Um, so you'd bundle them up and you have bigger kind of packages of customers. So then when you kind of, if you auction those off to suppliers, they've got more of an incentive, you know, those customers have greater buyer power. So those suppliers have more an incentive to offer better prices and better deals. Um, there is some stuff going on in collective switching, or there has been some stuff proposed by, by government, but I think it's on an opt-in basis, isn't it, rather than a, it's not like a fallback option. So local councils have been offering this kind of services, like, hey, mm. come join in our buyers club. It's Norwich, you know, Norwich City, for example, have got a, a thing where, yeah, come sign up. We'll all do it together. Collective bargaining, people power, local municipal stuff. Um there's also Labrador, I think they're called, who are like a auto-switching site. It will do it for you individually. Um, but I think another another option that you that, that could be considered is a uh, nationalised energy, energy supplier. Mm. It's like everyone, okay, you you've you were on a fixed tariff with this cus, with this supplier. You now instead of f- falling back onto their fixed tariff, you fall back onto the Great British energy company the you know there will always be a space for somebody who doesn't want to engage in a smart way yeah or can't you know i I think there's obviously with retail there's obviously big customer vulnerability angle and fuel poverty so there has to be you know very robust protections for those customers as well and but what what does that mean for our kind of savvy switches like where is the future so in the short term that's got to be around the mandatory half hourly settlement Mm -hmm. stuff like we Everyone needs to get a smart meter. That simplifies the data collection, data aggregation process for suppliers. That's great. It's well, it simplifies things, but it also kind of, in some senses, might make things more challenging for suppliers, right? Because previously we had this concept of profiles, so energy profiles, where you know because we didn't have that half hourly data, we had to kind of just guess what people were consuming in between, which was fairly predictable. You kind of know what the profiles look like. Whereas now with half hourly settlements and market wide half hourly settlements, suppliers will be effectively exposed to the actual consumption that their consumers are consuming. Yeah. And this this is a really exciting bit because this is where time of use tariffs come in, which is about, you know, the thing we're interested in, which is sending signals. Um, and that the idea here, I think, will be is that we'll probably see some. I imagine we will see some form of market for half hourly tariffs arrive where it'll integrate you'll have an app on your phone and it'll tell you your price and it'll give you nudges and winks and things like that i saw this the other day with um, someone tweeted me they have an octopus agile tariff and their phone nudged them and said by the way the price is going to be high tomorrow and anyway yeah so you, you could have this kind of thing where your phone is nudging you and saying hey by the way your, your tariffs is going to be maybe maybe don't cook your dinner now cook it later that kind of deal um and here's the tariff laid out for you uh and here's all your data like we downloaded the data from your meter it's on your phone you can see that in the past you did this and these were the charges that we were applying to you at that time so you can see all your bills in real time that might be where companies like google and amazon get more interested is when you've got that interaction but again, it's still quite granular. doesn't tell you very much about the person. Mm. I'll tell you what I want is not that. <laughs> so I, the last thing I want is another notification on my phone. What the, Where I want to get to is that all of that's automated and I don't need to respond or nudge. I've got a clever fridge or whatever it is that can that can respond. Yeah, so this is where you've got um, a, ugh, AI, let's call it machine learning in this case, that has that historical data one of the key things in the market of the future will be whether or not you consent to move all of your data with you when you switch supplier because how can i offer the best tariff to you if i don't know what you did in the past so i imagine that the best tariffs will only be available to you when you move but with all of your data in the world of half hourly smart meters 
there's only four registers, if I'm correct, on your meter. So one for import, one for export, and then two extras. So which could either be an export or an import meter. So you can have two appliances. You can have your solar panel. You, you can have you. So you get one export meter. You get one import meter. If you want to put heat, you can have a heat pump and an electric vehicle, then separately metered. Um, there's is there a brave new world out there where we're actually doing much smarter metering um and we are not just metering your you know the, the wire between your house and the network but are we metering what your fridge is doing what your heat pump and all your individual assets are doing are they then hooked into your google nest amazon whatever her name is smart system that's then like telling the fridge to cool down sorry warm up for a bit um <laughs> or you know your laptop or cool to... down maybe i want my my ice for my gin and tonic ready yeah Probably and, it, and, it, and have five. you could t- you could tell your smart assistant all about your lifestyle what you want to do when you want to leave for a meeting when you want to take the kids to school when you want to start cooking dinner all that sort of stuff and it then plans your appliances life and goes and buys all the power when you tell it what you want to do and then it has a fit and breaks down when you change your mind because you're human <laughs> um uh, and and all and all that sort of stuff that that feels like the kind of world that we might own that we could get to anyway but i think it from a from a system grid point of view only when we're showing those assets the signal of their action so do is there a way then to drive the price down to an individual assets um yeah consumption that's where the tariff building the network charges that all starts to coalesce around together and you start to getting into the idea of the supplier's tax collector mm-hmm. tax and that that's the balance of those things has changed over time right so mm. you know the proportion of tax and you know things that you can't move effectively has grown as policy costs etc have increased and basically all carbon taxes are paid on electricity you don't pay any on your gas mm. as a retail customer um which is mostly what we focused on because non-domestic <laughs> supplies is a whole other kettle of fish mm-hmm. that we'd need another episode to go into Absolutely. um but yeah i i would agree with many of the suppliers who say actually you know the net zero transition a smarter more responsive retail market we should move either these charges into general taxation where they can be taxed progressively or they can be spread more evenly across the fuels um or they can be recovered in some other way that doesn't affect um the signals that we want to send about how where and when you use your electricity i mean this this bigger world so I mean, the world where we have our smart appliances, where we've got, you know, signals in real time or close to real time. I mean, how do we get there? What needs to change? So we, I guess the question in my mind is we're going to get to mandatory half-hourly settlements. I think the plan is by like 2023. Yeah, I think there's a managed transition over that period, yeah. So eventually we'll all be on half-hourly meters with the data read much more frequently, much more accurately. The de- question then is how does the retail market respond? Because at that point, um, hopefully, suppliers will be able to kind of open up the tariff innovation and start charging people. You know, will we will we see more agile tariffs come out? Because if everyone's on a half hourly meter, we can actually accurately reflect all of this stuff. Um, you know, economy seven has been a thing forever. So there's there's off there's obviously a bunch of people who understand. You know, if I use my electricity overnight, it's cheaper than if I use it in the day i think um that's the key enabler you know measuring things quantifying them oh and then you can send the signal yeah well i think there's a there's well two things i'd say to that as was firstly well i'd query whether and this is obviously a big debate but whether 30 minutes is granular enough um and i suppose i'd also say there's probably when this is also ongoing but there's a, a market design change that probably needs to happen so I mean, we use the example of Octopus's Agile Tariff earlier, which is linked to the day ahead market and the day ahead price, which you know in our current market is a very liquid uh, reference price. We don't really have that same kind of um, pricing that suppliers can link to at later stages. So whether that's you know intraday um, or even kind of real time or close to real time. 
Um, what I'd love to see is a is a change in market design so that you know the, those signals to respond in intraday are, are stronger. So I think that can send a better signal to customers because it's you know closer to their own consumption, but it's also a better signal from the market because you know as we know the, the electricity market we get more and more information as we get closer to real time. So I think there's an opportunity here for a smart supplier and generator to work together because um, if there isn't that signal there, you could make it by contracting with a generator. So, for example, like a contract with a battery or a um, gas reciprocating engine, and they could be the liquidity on the other side of that deal because they are exposed to the day ahead within day markets. They can actually be the funnel through which I make that deal with the customer because I can always back off that real-time price against the gas engine. So why go, yeah, I don't need to enter the wholesale market. I could have this PPA with the gas engine and they're sending some sort of signal through to me. And and you could build up that, that sort of... This, this has all come full circle, Tom, because that sounds very like vertical integration to me. Well, interestingly, the CMA did say vertical integration wasn't a bad thing. And yeah, I, I yeah. can't disagree. I don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily think that, that it is a bad thing. I guess it is where there's market power. Well, that's the thing. In and of itself, there should be no issues and vertical integration should be, you know, it's an efficient thing to do. It's, yeah, if one of the parties within that relationship also happens to mean to have a position of market power and then abuses it, then yes, it's an issue. Yeah, but I, I think that there there's an opportunity there. If, you know, once people accept time of use tariffs and they're on half hourly meters, that you could get this kind of relationship being, you know, a a supplier actually goes out and signs a long-term purchasing agreement with a gas-fired generator. They'll ride in balance when the, you know, the wind is plentiful and prices are low, but then they'll back up onto the gas-fired generator when prices go high again. And, and that's how they'll offer you know, the short-term spot and they'll also be doing the day ahead and you know, you'll have that hedge. And I think, you know, what is it? Last gas-fired generator I went to see said they could power all of Exeter. So you could, you could be doing hundreds of thousands of people on one, one gas gen. Um, you know, that's that's what you'd be signing them up in those kind of blocks to build up your tariff as you build up your generator relationship, and that that could be where in the short term, and then and then we have to we have to wait to see how far how how many people are willing. Like, who's going to spend the money on on these new AI systems? Can they be integrated into your retail tariffs? Presumably, like um, the people offering your your nests, mm-hmm. your Alexas will have an API backend into somebody's retail tariff systems. And presumably all of the suppliers will at some point be forced to create these backends so that customers don't switch away from them because they'll, you know, if I bought an Alexa or a Nest or something, I wanted to be able to talk to my supplier so that, um, so that my Google Nest or whatever can talk to my meter and can get you know get my appliances to do the right thing so all the suppliers are going to have to integrate i think as the consumer appliance market which has been interesting because that we saw a lot of you know the last few years have been a lot of interesting technology offerings on the domestic side you know clever meters etc cetera, etc cetera. but i guess until as we mentioned at the start until suppliers start embracing those things they won't really have a make a meaningful impact so i mean there's more i think there's more to talk about here as well on things like evs and heat pumps but Story for another day. Story yeah. for yeah, like they are topics in and of themselves, I think. And and I, yeah, <laughs> let's let's leave it there because I think we've already. <laughs> well, let's. I guess after our discussion today, should we? Do you want to start an energy supplier? No. No. no, no, no. <laughs>